Welcome to the week in IndyCar on our little Marshall Pruitt podcast audio experiment brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Who do we have for the first time to my grand embarrassment? We have my pal Paul Page. The Paul Page. I almost feel like I should insert a freaking in there. Paul freaking Page. The voice, the permanent voice for so many of us when we think IndyCar. How you doing? What are you doing? I'm doing good. I, and I don't know how to overcome that welcome. That's awesome. Well, That's tell scary. me about your, your poor decision-making uh, skills by accepting my invitation. First of all, Paul, you're better than this, but hey, I guess you take pity on me. Uh, no, I enjoy these kind of things, I, you know, because you're actually talking to people who not only care, but they really understand. And so these things are always much fun, especially with you. You know, I've been keeping track for years, and it's more an honor for me, I think. Oh, well, you're silly. going to ask about a certain war and peace-like production going on in your world, putting a book together that cannot wait to get my hands on. But before that, I just want to share with folks one of my favorite Paul Page memories, Unrelated to anything serious, I think it was the 97 or 98 Indy 500, the little Thomas Knapp Motorsports Genoa team with Greg Ray, where I was the uh, assistant team manager and engineer there and whatever, jack of many trades. We weren't particularly known uh, in IRL circles. We were an Indy Lights team coming up and trying to uh, dance in IndyCar at the Indy 500 for the first time. And so... I think as you would do normally with any new team or folks that you might not know so well, you made it a point to stop by our garage in Gasoline Alley at one point just to say hi and, you know, again, get to know folks a little bit, certainly help you in your broadcasting capabilities. And you happen to notice the refueling helmets that I had stickered up. Uh, We had one, our main refueler, a guy by the name of Gary Pennison, who from Michigan and physical stature, I can just say looked like a bowling ball with a mustache. Uh, he was a round, <laughs> round man. Loved him, but a round man nonetheless. And our vent person, an air jack person, uh, Ed Nelson, tall and rather slim. So I had just decided, although I don't think either of them were watching South Park or knew what it was at the time. I had just put uh, Cartman on on Gary's because he certainly looked like Cartman and Kenny on Ed's. Mm-hmm. And so while in our garage, just again, introducing yourself to everyone, you caught those two helmets sitting there and just about pissed yourself laughing. And then when you, <laughs> you asked me about them and I pointed out who the Cartman was in the garage and who the Kenny was, you just were crying even more laughing, realizing that, yeah, actually, it's a pretty good fit. And then we had a fun conversation about your passion for South Park. And I'm like, you know what? Paul Page is just the freaking man. So anyways, just wanted to recount that. And I'll never forget that because uh, if nothing else, we bonded over South Park. Okay, and that's a good way to do it, I think. (laughs) Let's talk before we get to the many, many questions that came in, Paul. It's so cool to see how many folks just love you and want to connect. Let's talk about a book that you have been beavering away on. When are we going to get to read it? What is it titled? And how much scandal and infamy does it include? Well, the book itself, um, totally arrogantly and egotistically, is called Hello, I'm Paul Page. It's race day in Indianapolis, which was kind of a signature for me. Uh, Hello, I'm Paul Page for all the other races, and certainly it's race day in Indianapolis for Indy. So that's why I chose it. Um, who knows? I, You know, my first foray into it. Um, the printer gets the book actually on Monday. Yes. Uh, and uh, so the galleys are all out, and they've been done. And so the only other shot is with the printer, they will send a copy of the book, like three copies to me. And I'm supposed to read that intensely and make sure that everything is in there is, is correct. It doesn't invite major changes, but, you know, little changes. And then on uh, May 7th, the book will be returned to me or returned to the publisher and open for distribution. And my hope is that the Speedway will be kind enough to let me uh, debut the book there. 
and it's but it's already available pre-order on uh, Barnes and Nobles and Amazon. Now, having said all said all that, and I'm sure you've gone through this kind of thing too. Um, when you uh, like when I'm doing a television feature and I'm editing, if they give me 20 hours to edit it. I will take 20 hours in one minute. 100%. Because you get down to a point where you say, oh, no, I'm going to change this. I'm going to change this. I'm going to make it better. This has to be changed. Same thing with a book. I mean, every time you read it, it's like, oh, I could said that better. I could do this, you know. So I'm now at that stage with which it's gone. I hope people like it. A few people who have read the galleys like it. Um, I chose to make it uh, in two voices. One voice is telling you about the history of the Speedway since 1960. And I chose that year for two reasons. That was my first race to see. And it picks up where Al Blemker left off in doing the history of Indy on his book, 500 Miles to Go. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to get a sense of the history since then, because while there have been a lot of books done, they don't in my view, specifically address some of this historic. And so I wind that in with my own experiences. And I hope people like it. That is going There's to be... There's a lot be... of stories like the Driven story in there. Well, yeah, there, that's that's going to be a gift. We recorded a little something separate uh, earlier about the movie Driven since I'm working mm-hmm. away on a uh, oral history of the worst racing movie ever made with its 20th anniversary <laughs> just a matter of weeks away. Um, wow. Well, I'm really happy to hear about the book, Paul, and I hope folks do, uh, go and partake in it. So that is, uh, that makes me really, really happy to hear. I just hope if, if somebody finds one or two things that they didn't know and they think are interesting and they learn something, I will be very happy. I guess the, the last question I have on the book, and I would assume you did this. Did you send a copy down to uh, Greater Albuquerque to just save yourself time on the editing process? Because I'm fairly uh, confident one B Unser could very—I'm sure he had redline the entire thing as inaccurate. But you might have saved yourself uh, some time there. Well, with regard to Uncle Bobby, uh, the first answer is no. I did not. <laughs> And the reason there is, of course, Uncle Bobby would try and take control of the book immediately. And I'd hear that. Now, Paul, that's not exactly how it happened, you know. So, <laughs> and we spent so many hours together and so many secret hours together, you know, stuff that never is going to hit that book. But there are a bunch of good Bobby stories in there. And I just he's not going to get to see it until it, until it publishes just because I don't need that phone call. Like, we need to change this Paul. I'm a lot better looking than that. <laughs> <laughs> ah! And there's, there's a number of stories that speak to some of his, uh, well, his fear of heights for one 13 time, um, champion of the hill climb Pikes peak. And he's afraid of heights. And how I exploited that in the booth, and stories about him and Sam in the booth, and what it's what it's supposed to be on the backside is here's what the race was, and here are some of the things that happened that surrounded it, or this is what the season was, and here are a few things. It's it's not a kiss and tell. There's there's no negatives in it. This is this is fun. This is this is describing my passion uh, that I've had from my entire life for the Indianapolis 500 and IndyCar racing. So happy for you and ha- for me, because now I have an awesome Thank new you. book to buy and t- and hopefully do good with my word reading and whatnot. Let's dive into a healthy dose of awesome questions. We're going to kick it off with one that I think has become immensely celebrated in recent years. This comes from David Barker. It says, Paul, first of all, I want to say thank you. My fondest memories I have as a child was watching the Indy 500 with my grandfather and your Delta Force themed prologues getting us hyped for the race. Uh, he says, <laughs> if uh, IndyCar NBC were to ask, would you do uh, one more for old time's sake? So that's a question from David. And also just to expand that out, the Delta Force Force themed intros and whatnot. Those, uh, there's just a special place. Folks, I don't know. I can't figure it out exactly. But I know you get asked about it all the time. There is something special there. 
Yeah, um, I do, and it's it's very special to me. Uh, what's what's especially fascinating to me is it's become a cult thing. Um, you know, I haven't done one since two thousand and four. I would I would love the chance to do a couple of more of those again. But um, so I would love to do them. Um, the the work itself now is being copied on YouTube by all kinds of people who just want to create another Delta Force for another year, and that's you know that's the ultimate compliment I guess. It's uh, um, but the way it way it started editing back in '88, which was when the first couple of them started. I think we started hitting on the on all cylinders in the uh, in the '90 version of it, <clears throat> but we. Don Olmeyer, who really is the guy that started IndyCar television becoming something significant and important. And uh, he was our director. Later, he was our director at the Indy 500 when he was, in fact, the president of NBC Sports at the same time. So that's a guy pretty well devoted to racing. But he called me one day, and we're at the compound at the Speedway, and this is the time when we're editing, like, on one-inch tape and... uh, the uh, linear editing and everything. And he says, I'm going to put together the best shots that I can find, which is very good television. And so I'll put all that video together and then I'll give it to you and you can write to it. So there was no particular sense of flow of what it was going to be. And it never was in the years that we did it. So he would work in the trucks there on the grounds, nothing sophisticated like we had now where we could do it nonlinear. You could do it on a laptop for goodness sake. Uh, but we spent hours in the trucks finding those shots. And then on Wednesday before the race, late Wednesday afternoon, he would show me the video. And it's like, here you are, right to it. So I'd spend the next at least day and a half, if not 48 hours, working on what the script needed to be for it. And then on Friday afternoon... We would go into the voiceover trailer and remember, too, at that time, you had to read the voiceover all the way through. You couldn't stop. There was, there was no editing. If you screwed it up, you had to go back to the beginning. So we'd go in and we recorded, and then on Saturday morning after the uh, ABC rehearsal, uh, we would play it for them as kind of a uh, get pumped up about the 500 thing. So that's how they were all generated, and uh, with no particular no particular storyline there at all. The storyline was the video, and maybe you could catch a sense of what he was trying to say, but we never talked about it. He said, "Here it is, and you write it." And it was so it was fun to do because it was, you know, it was such a challenge to do those. So I really enjoyed every minute of it, and I I still can't believe people copy it. And yes, I would love to do another one. Well, we're going to start a campaign for both to happen and for you to have that Delta Force intro, of course. Uh, Let's see. Where should we go next? Sean Olmstead. He says, just two quick questions. says, I hear you own all the cart slash champ car radio broadcasts. I was wondering if you'll be offering them for purchase similar to the IMS broadcasts. And then he closes by saying, why did you leave Twitter, Paul? We miss you. Oh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, several good questions. Um, I do, in fact, own the CART broadcasts, radio broadcasts. That was that was a network that uh, my wife Sally and I put together, and we just wanted to do it. We had done it with the Speedway in 1978, a whole season concept of broadcast, but it it obviously didn't make any money. Um, and the Speedway was going, if you remember well, in between 78 and 79, a, a lot of traumatic circumstances. Yeah. So it kind of just drifted away. And um, But when CART came on, I approached them, and we did it, and I thought it was pretty good. We had, we had a lot of good broadcasts. Uh, it's interesting. I've never thought about posting them. Um, and if somebody's interested, yeah, maybe we probably ought to do that. I just It never came to my mind. I love the idea. What about Twitter? Twitter, 
Twitter is like, it was quasi-political. Um, I just was getting tired of friends of mine calling me, and for whatever reason, and not necessarily full political, just saying, hey, they just, they just pulled my, my post down. And I decided that I needed to indicate in some way that I, I, I didn't really appreciate that. Now, that doesn't mean I won't get back on it. It just kind of hit me, especially the couple of guys that hit me with non-political stuff. Uh, and it's like, why are they taking that down? I don't have a good example for you, but that's why. I just It was also probably one of those spur of the moments where you take aim at your big toe and blow it off. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'll be back there. I just, I've got other stuff at the moment. I enjoy you can social. Go on Instagram. We got good Instagram and Facebook. Stuff. Okay. See, well, we're tuned up in those areas. I enjoy social media, Paul. Whenever I need a reminder that I'm fat, stupid, ugly, and a variety of other things. So, you know, yeah. it's always there. We used to have. I'll tell you what. I'll share with you. We used to have, um, and we created what we call the Jan Bikas rule. Um, most of us that were pros at it when it was even starting, when guys like Hollander were first starting with race information services and everything. And all of a sudden the flaming started Parker. It drove him crazy. Um, and finally he hired somebody to, um, to try to figure out what was really happening to him. And what he found was there was like one guy with nine screen names and, you know, several of those, flaming each other back and forth on how bad Parker was. And one of them actually threatened his life and Parker took some action on that. So, but I said, Parker, we don't, don't read the internet. You know, they don't know what you just did and they don't know what you overcame to do it. And he, he bought into that, but then along came Jan and, uh, you know, I brought Jan on board and he started reading and I'm Jan, don't read the internet. And he'd come back every weekend. Oh, they're saying this about me. They're saying that about me. And finally, we said, Jan, here's the rule. This is the biggest rule. You may not read the Internet. <laughs> I don't want to hear that you read the Internet because all it's doing is getting you down. It's one of the finest things uh, Sebastian Bourdais said uh, many, many years ago. Never read the comments. Mm. No, so exactly. I, I, I try, well, you know, it's part of the thing now. about that, if I can drag you into this, part of the thing about that is they truly don't know what you are doing. Your job as a play by play guy of an, of any race, any sport is you're the, you're the rooting press. It doesn't mean you avoid negatives, but you don't try to seek them out. And my view was if you could do it on the screen in front of me, it gets in the show. I don't care about any other crap beyond that. I certainly don't care. I went through two splits. I never want to go through a split again. Mm. But so that that kind of was uh, was a guide in in terms of how to how to approach it, how to approach the internet. Wisdom from Paul Page. I love it. Where are we going next? How about our pal Hrishi Deshpand, who says, "Paul, thanks for answering our questions." says, when you were lead commentator, what did your research and prep endeavors look like? He says, I've seen Chris Denari's Pacers notes, and they are very detailed. Uh, did you make similar notes, and how did your preparations change for Indy versus, say, a normal race weekend of coverage? Well, um, let's start with the incredible man who just passed away, Murray Walker, mm -hmm. who was, in my view, the European equivalent of Sid Collins. And I knew Murray, and I first met him at Silverstone. And uh, we were actually at a world championship motorcycle race, so this is in the early 80s. And I already was, was a big admirer of his. And I was watching him work, and I looked at his charts, and I... He, you know, I said, what are you doing here? What are these little initials? You know, and he, he taught me his charts. And so that's what I began to use. And it's pretty cryptic. Um, but once you know how to use it and how to put things into it, it's, it's very helpful. Keeping in mind the play-by-play -play of motorsports, you really can't look down. 
And you take your eyes off that. And it happened to me once. It, I took my eyes off the screen for like two seconds. And when my eyes come back to it, some guy's hitting the wall. Hmm. You know, so you really can't look away from the screen. And you have to stay on the screen because that's what the audience sees. You know, you'd love to say, oh, this is also happening. But, you know, that drives, it affects the audience adversely, whether or not they think it does or not. So um, my preparation was always first person. Uh, there were maybe two guys, uh, Kevin Diamond and Dan Luganbuehl, who actually would give you viable, functional information, and they'd give it to you as bullet points. And that was a good way to do it. But mostly what I did is what you just talked about a little while ago. I'd go and, uh, and visit the teams. And moreover, visit, visit the guys who were actually doing the work and find out what was going on. You know, I was a gopher for George Bignotti years ago, and I, I know where the work is done and where the secrets really are. And it, it doesn't exist in a news conference or a press release. So if you want to know these people, and, I, and my job is to communicate what cool people they are, you got to go talk to the people. So that's how my research generally took place. Amen. Going to stay with the name you just mentioned, a legend, legend, legend of Indianapolis Broadcasting. Mike Jablo says, Paul, what's your favorite Sid Collins story? Also asks, how did the two of you become close friends? Oh, man, it's gone forever. <laughs> um, let, me, let me say it this way. There's a lot of it in the book. Why don't you read the book? <laughs> no. I met Sid. I, when I... When I got out of the military, well, actually, before that, when I was 15, I went to my first Indy 500. I didn't live in the, in the city. I lived, uh, I was a military brat. So at the time, we were stationed in Fort Sheridan, Illinois. And um, I had been to a Formula One race when we were stationed in Germany at the Nürburgring, but I'm like seven years old, you know. Mm. But nevertheless, it stuck with me. And my family says, uh, you're a family in Indianapolis wants you to come down and see the Indy 500. They're going to pay your whole way. I don't want to see cars just turn left. you got to be kidding me. And But, you know, under duress, I went. <clears throat> the race hadn't started yet. And my heart said, this is what you've got to be part of. This is it. One of the most memorable things, I'm sitting up in Grandstand B. And so you, you, you don't see the, the crowd at the starting line or any of that stuff. Fortunately, you were very close to the old uh, victory lane, but and you look up there and you hear Tom Carnegie, you know, here on the starting line, we're talking with and, uh, the chief steward of the race is about to make his final inspection. It's like, okay, it's total fantasy, but he got in the car and did it. You know, and all that tradition just sucked me right in. Wow. And, um, so when I got out of the army, I, uh, went to Indianapolis and, and, did everything I could. I worked as a gopher for Bignotti. Uh, I bought and maintained a Formula Ford. Uh, one thinking I might be a race driver, but soon finding out I wasn't. Uh, but still had fun with it for about seven years. And when I met Sid, I had deliberately tried to get a job at WIBC because that's where he was working. And when I first met him, uh, I, you know, he was he was like up on this giant pedestal, didn't even have him in the building. He was so cool. And one day I did a, um, uh, soapbox derby interview of the winner. And I, you know, I brought the tape back to the station. I put it on the air. And, um, I'm walking down the hall, pretty pleased with myself. And there stands Sid. And he says, that's the worst interview I've ever heard. Well, you know, my heart's now flattened on the floor. I have no chance whatsoever. But at, on that very same time, he took pity on me. He says, I'm going to teach you how to interview. And from that on, we became very, very close friends. He became my mentor. And, um, but for years, he'd say, there's no way you're going to get on the radio network. Uh, just don't even worry about that. We're just, you know, we'll do this stuff here at WIBC. You're cool. And then one day after actually the 73 race inspired it with the, all the accidents, um, in the next year, they decided to extend the length of the pits. And Sid determined, therefore, that they needed an extra pit reporter, and that was going to be me. And they also brought Jerry Baker on board at the same time. We were both called into his office 
having no idea what he was going to say. And he took me in first and he told me, and I'm like trying not to jump up and down and cheer is don't tell any, don't tell Jerry anything. So, Oh my God. So I'm now out in the parking lot of WIBC at 2800 block in North Illinois waiting for Jerry to come out. And he comes out. We both start dancing through the parking lot. And go, <laughs> so, uh, and, but Sid then decided that he wanted to mentor me into, uh, be his successor. And that got really intense starting in 74. And of course, Sid had, had, uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, the Lou Gehrig disease. And, Everybody tried to avoid letting him know that he had that because he had no family, lived alone. He had us. He had like four of us who were his friends. And he went to the Mayo Clinic and, you know, they're more of a factory. And they said, well, you got ALS. You got, you know, X number of months to live. He came back devastated and uh, ended up committing suicide the day before he was supposed to start uh, preparation in May for the 1977 race. Having said those negative things, Sid was hilarious. He was the most deadpan, funny guy I've ever met. Maybe Lou Palmer is close, but, but Sid was also the cheapest man I ever met. And just to justify that, I'm at his place one night. He's actually not feeling well, so he's in his bedroom and we're talking, we're talking. And he says, you, you want to, you want to drink? I said, sure. But I know he doesn't drink. So where's this coming from? He says, well, go downstairs and go, go in the, in the dining room there in the buffet and get yourself a drink. Uh, you know, in the buffet. Okay. So I go downstairs. There's nothing on the buffet. I pull out a drawer and there had to be 500 airline bottles of liquor <laughs> and laying on top of them was an inventory of what was there with check marks on when he needed more. So I go upstairs with my drink and I look at him and he kind of sheepishly looks at me and he says, you know, I always fly first class. I don't drink, but I always fly first class. I said, yeah. well, when you fly first class, they owe you three drinks. So I get my three bottles. <laughs> That's like the cheapest thing I've ever heard of. Wow. <laughs> but that was him. He, was, he never took himself particularly seriously. Whether it was he just didn't he didn't transmit that to, transmit that to other people. Yeah, well, whether it was small volumes of alcohol or shampoo or I imagine many other things you'd come across and travel. That's uh, that's yeah. phenomenal. Well, I think the probably the funniest was after he passed, and three of us were uh, had the task of taking his apartment apart and you know seeing what to do with the things that were there. And Freddie Agavation, who uh, we know as a, what, 52 pole sitter, uh, but, you know, long history as a driver and then worked for Sid as a driver analyst. And, but he worked at the time for the Champion Spark Club company. And we're in this room. Sid has a bedroom, an office, and a storeroom. Three bedroom apartment, and one of them's a storeroom. And it's literally floor to ceiling with boxes. And, I hear Freddie back in there. I'm in I'm in the office room cleaning stuff up, and he says, "You know, I hear this. Oh my goodness!" And you know, we run to see, you know, what's going on. And he's holding up a box filled with little boxes of Champion Spark Plug cufflinks, <laughs> little, little spark plugs made into a cufflink. And he looks at me and he says, "He's got five boxes of these." And we haven't had this for 20 years. So <laughs> that was serious. It was just so cool. Wow. That is brilliant. That is so brilliant. Why don't we move to someone who apparently was a part of the uh, Paul Page racing armada back in the day. And I do want to mention, of the many things I have appreciated about you, Paul, it's the fact that your life and your involvement in motor racing has gone much deeper and much farther than the thing most folks know you for. Again, you on television, in front of a camera, a voice heard over radio. I would say that's the majority of connection that uh, connections that have been made throughout the majority of your career. But 
You've already spoken a bit about driving uh, your service, obviously, in the military and whatnot. You have you've been all in for a long time, which I think many folks might not fully appreciate. And so I thank our listener, Brian Cohn, who sends this in, which touches on some of the topics. He says, Paul raced a Mustang SVO with Paul Jenner, uh, Bruce Jenner, I'm sorry, the Olympian in the SCC Escort Series at Mid-Ohio in 1984. He says, I think the third driver was the late Jerry Clinton that raced in Trans Am for ages. Brian says, I was the refueler on the team. Um, He says, I know that Paul raced Formula Fords earlier in his life. What else did he race? How long did you continue racing? So that's a part I'd love to expand on a little bit, Paul, because I do recall seeing your name here and there. And you were someone who wasn't just trying to do it for fun. Like, hey, I'm broadcaster and these are some of the perks of the job. And you were, were slash are. A real racer. That's always been, you know, a, a significant component of your composition. I don't know if folks fully grasp that uh, you love getting into them race cars. Oh, I love it. And to to make sure you understand, I won one race in my entire racing history. Same here. Um, Just but, one. Uh, on the other hand, I did uh, create the axiom that uh, the brakes are ineffective when the car is upside down. That's, that's, <laughs> I kind of proved that. So. <laughs> But no, I, I started in Formula Ford in 69, the same year it's Formula Ford as a class started. And my first car was a Lotus 51. A uh, friend loaned it to me because I'd spun the bearings up in driver's school of my Fiat 124, which was my race car. And uh, so he loaned it to me. The only problem was it was a full English race car. So the gear shift is on the wrong side. So I'm roaring out of the pit, suddenly realizing, where's the gear shift? <laughs> And But I stayed with it. I bought an Eldon Mark 10C. I, I raced mostly Sendiv and uh, really enjoyed it. Got my national license for a number of years. Uh, and then when I got the Indy job, you know, I didn't really have weekends anymore. So I stopped doing it. Still, though, if somebody is dumb enough to give me a car to race, I will certainly do that. That particular event was a hoot. It was a full-on showroom stock 24-hour race um, at Mid-Ohio. And, yeah, Bruce was there. Uh, and I call him Bruce both here and in the book because he was Bruce to me. Uh, nothing to say about what he has changed, to. I'm happy for him. If he's happy, I'm cool. Um, but uh, Bob Bondurant was on that team. Uh, Lynn St. James was that te- on that team. And Kenny Roberts was on that team. Wow. And it was, I mean, you talk about luminaries. You know, you're hiding in the back of the pit. And, um but everybody's telling, I'd never driven at night. And they're, you know, all right, here's what you got to do to drive at night. And I loved it because the way the cars were all lit up, I came through the backside of, of uh, Mid-Ohio, down there where it's a little low and there's fog off the lake. So this is the middle of the night, and I'm driving into this fog. And the guy in front of me had all kinds of marker lights on it. And in the fog, it looked like a starship. <laughs> I'm in space. But um, we didn't do very well. Our uh, our brake system, uh, and Cranifus was the guy who put this together when he was with uh, Ford. Uh, our brakes ran out at the same time our fuel tank did. And Bruce started the car, and I was second. And I climb in, he buckles me and everything. He says, the brakes are a little soft. And I get to the end of the pit road and try to make that left into the first turn. And the pedal goes all the way to the floor. <laughs> that's, that's not soft, Bruce. So I'd get a lap around, and they, and they changed the brakes. The brakes, we ran out of brakes maybe in three or four hours, and we were out borrowing brakes, quotation marks around that, off of Mustangs in the parking lot. And we didn't do very well. We had we had a problem with the engine, so we didn't do it real. But it was Bondurant in the middle of the night. I'm running a little too slow for him, and he comes up behind me. And I do a, at the time I did a light, a small lift going into one and I did that and he's behind me and he pushed me all the way through one. And then he starts out, pulls alongside of me and waves and then points straight ahead. And I said, Oh, I got a lesson from Bob Bondurant. I didn't have to pay for it. Ah, <laughs> uh, the joys, the joys. But I have, uh, I, I guess I do need to add that not only that, 
I love the Baja 1000. And I've raced it three times and uh, in a in a buggy. And I did it once with my son, which is you know, very special. But I love I love off road racing. That that thing is a hoot. It's amazing. Let's see. Where should we? So if you run into a car, just let me know. I'll drive it. Okay. Well, <laughs> I've also driven. Just for the record, I've driven figure eight twice. Once in the Astrodome and once in, at the uh, uh, once in Indianapolis. So wow. I'm really stupid. Hey, <laughs> I love it. Let's uh, let's go to a probing question here from Alan Bandy. He says Paul, you've made some incredible calls in racing and have always been able to bring me to the edge of my seat when I was watching. He asks, how do you balance your emotions and excitement with your incredible professional ability to do commentary so well? especially when a race is coming down to the wire. Yes. How do you avoid jumping up and down and screaming and making animal sounds when things get really good? Uh, There has to be an art to that. Is that something you developed, came naturally? How does that happen? Uh, It was conscious. It was conscious development. Uh, First of all, don't suggest that I don't jump up and down. Um, Because I'm, you know... I'm I'm first a race fan. That's my passion. So and the race is great. I'm on my feet. Um, yeah, I'm jumping a little probably. Um, my first race um, was 1977 as the anchor at Indy, and I'd been working as the go far go for as I suggested, and the radio guy on the road uh, for Big Naughty at Patrick Racing, and so I had a slight favoritism to them. And A.J. Foyt, you know, got his fourth win in that. And, you know, that was super. And I really, who's not a fan of A.J. Foyt? Um, but I realized after I listened to that broadcast, it could be construed that maybe I had a, uh, just a slight edge toward the Patrick Racing team. And then nobody said that. Nobody necessarily caught that, but I did. And I said, that can't happen again. Mm. And. So what I did was mentally decide and make it a truth that we were a community. We were a family. And I needed to be happy for everybody in terms of the broadcasting. So anytime somebody did something, especially back in the field, somebody's driving a personal best. You got to get into that. You got to enjoy that. You got to make your public enjoy that. The purpose you stand there. You, you, you're a traffic director, one. You're getting in between different parts of the event and what's in the pits and what's here and what's there, and hopefully making that some sort of uh, understandable connection, uh, which was much easier on radio uh, because in television you're restricted, again, to the screen, and that's being controlled by a guy in a, you know, a dark truck a uh, quarter mile away. But I did all, I was always conscious, but when I became in my own mind more and more of the community, I, I really kind of rejoiced for anybody who did anything good. And when they were in a great battle, having been in a race car and some fun battles, I knew that they were having the time of their life, you know, to Depaldi and Unser Jr. That, that run, and finally they touch, to Depaldi goes on, Unser's off the side of the throws, having, having crashed. I know that in their mind that that was probably the best moment of their racing career. And Mario gives some voice to that. And he says, um, I'll paraphrase a little. He said that all the drivers uh, will answer you if you ask about a win, but their memories are actually about times they didn't. Yeah. And um, I've been conscious of that, too. I, I know, again, from my own experience, fighting out at, at Road America once on June Sprints, I'm fighting my, my tail off for like 13th. And I passed the guy in 12th just before the timing line. That's the pinnacle of my racing career. That was so cool. And it's things like that, I think, that the drivers themselves uh, remember. If you, In fact, I, I would ask them, uh, when I'm just sitting and talking with him, you know, what was the moment? I don't want to hear that uh, you finished first and everything was cool for Valvoline and Goodyear, et cetera. I want to hear what what really was fun for you. And then you'll get some different answers. 
Let's go to Rick Latimer, who has some another name you've mentioned, someone I'm quite fond of as well. He says, I really enjoyed the pairing of Paul and Parker Johnstone. He says, what did Paul think of his man Parker in the booth? He says, I know it was brand new for that 99 season full of fantastic racing. There are also some very sad scenes. So our man, Mr. John Stone, him in the booth. I know I was probably one of a few learning that that was going to become a thing who raised a uh, proverbial eyebrow and said, hmm, we know about the uh, page side. Not totally sure if the uh, Johnstone side is going to work, and indeed it did. What do you recall? What did you like working about? What did you like about working with our man from the Pacific well, Northwest? To begin with, he's a certifiable genius. Um, he has the world's greatest sense of humor, but he's a massive contradictions. He graduated at UC Berkeley, but he's extremely right politically. Um, he graduated with an EE degree, but then he went to Berlin to play coronet in the Berlin Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> and somewhere during that time, he decides, I want to be a race driver. So he goes back to the United States and, and becomes a race driver and becomes an excellent race driver. And he's had the Honda backing and everything. But being as bright as he is, he also has is, got a great, great sense of humor. <clears throat> One time we're in Portland, and we're in the broadcast booth, and we're in a long delay for whatever reason. And our booth was attached uh, to race control. And you could look into race control. There was a window between race control and our booth. And we were so bored, we decided to put on a circus show. And we're taking the stools that we sit on, and we're doing that whole da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And we're climbing up in the stools and throwing our hands up and applauding. That was Parker. He always had a and like you know, like the, he made a poster for me after Driven that said featuring the voice of Paul Page, which was actually the last thing I never ever wanted to see on a poster for that particular film. But uh, he was funny. He was very funny, very dedicated, and very good as a quick study. I hired him on the radio network and was kind of hacked off when television took him away because he was so good. He he and Lou Palmer, uh, who is one of the finest anchors I've ever known. Um, they got along so well, they, they meshed, they both had great senses of humor and it was good stuff. So television finally realized at first, uh, I mentioned the producer, you know, Parker's available on a weekend that we were tied on something and no, no, we, we don't want to use him. And later, Oh, we, we're taking him away from you. He's so good. Brilliant. Just brilliant. Spoke with him recently and yeah. Always a wonderful time spending, uh, whether it's in person or over the phone, spending a little bit of time in his uh, very unique world. So let's go to a couple of questions on one of our shared favorite topics, the split. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Yeah, hey, we got to have some fun. Uh, Let's see. Luis Calderon says, how tough was the cart IRL split for you? Says, I'm a big fan from Columbia. And thanks us for uh, having you as our guest. A couple others, Reed Alford, Dave Dennis, similar things. Curious behind the scenes if there were any significant challenges and whatnot in trying to uh, work both sides of the fence and be uh, uh, Switzerland. Um, Both the splits that I was involved in were painful and unnecessary uh, in the extent that they were. They could have been done entirely different ways. One I wasn't even sure was nearly necessary. Um, so when CART split away from USAC, I was part of that. And the thing was, it started with that, and of course it continued with the IRL split out. Guys who were your friends, a guy like you, that you're going in and you're talking to him in the garage and in the pits and saying, what's up? Suddenly, they're not your friend. Oh, you work for the other guys. You know, and that hurt. And people are giving me a lot of information about the split to the point I finally would tell people, I I appreciate you giving me that, but unless you can figure out how to get that on the air during a race, when all I'm doing is calling a race, good luck to you. Mm. Uh, I really got very upset with people trying to use all of us in broadcasting as a pawn. And then, of course, with the IRL, I had a year where I was doing both, IRL and IndyCar. 
And in that one, fans and all, everybody hated me. Because, you know, I was constantly on the wrong side. Uh, that, you know, I want to I want to call races. I, I would tell people, if you can get something on your car that tells me that there's something going on and there's a significant interest in it, maybe I will mention it. I never had to. But that's I, I'm there to call a race, not to deal in politics. But on a personal level, yeah, it was painful and distressing. People that you knew and you loved are like, oh, you're working for the other guy. No, I'm not. I'm working for IndyCar. I'm working for these cars that I've loved since I was 15. Definitely the mommy-daddy stop fighting eras of uh, open-wheel racing. All right, going to grab a few more here and then let us both loose into the rest of our Saturdays. And thank you again for making some time, Paul. I know it's my fault that this wasn't done days ago. Um, All right, let's... We'll stay on something a little serious here before we move on to some lighter fare. Mike DiCardo asks, Paul, when you're dealing with a bad accident during a race, depending on how much information you have, how much, say, the producer is feeding you, tell us a little bit about the process for you in handling such things. Talking about if we end up at a a really sad announcement that has to be made over the air, what is this circumstance like for you and how you've had to handle uh, them over the years? I know, again, just looking at the basics of a scenario, you have an audience at home, sometimes the family of the person involved in the crash, where information is wanted instantly, but there's also processes to keep in mind. There's also humanity to keep in mind. This is getting thrown into the, the scenario you and other broadcasters never want to find, but for sure is visited upon you at least once or twice in your career. Well, to start with, let me refer you to we're part of the family. We travel with them. We have our families together. So they're very much a family. So when something like that happens, it's, it's, it's shocking. We know it's out there. Eddie Cheever once said, you always know the monster is on the other side of the wall. And he's right. You always know that that's potential. Um, Sid, of course, is known for his uh, Death Has a Thousand Doors, which he used as a eulogy on the air for Eddie Sachs in 1964. Um, later, I found out it was like a two-hour delay. Sid had the information, the fatality, almost immediately, as did the PA. First, you're not going to use that until you know the family's taken care of. But Sid did have a great deal of time to figure out what he was going to say. And it was very important to him because he had not done well with some previous in-race fatalities like Bill Vukovic and Pat O'Connor. So he developed, and he he taught it to me, uh, he had a set of notes and they were just either a poetic line, like in that particular eulogy, he used Byron. Um, and so he had a whole bunch of little notes in an envelope that it passed on to me, labeled fatalities. Wow. And, and so what he did was he had a long period of time. And he, um, he had a lot of time to think about what he was doing. And so when he and I talked about it, I, I, I didn't go down that road. I went down the road of thinking about those same things and putting them in my mind. And, but when they would happen, and unfortunately it happened too often, um, I would almost always talk because I knew them so well on a personal level. Um, the worst for me and one of the worst experiences in my life was Greg Moore. Mm. Uh, and it was because we knew, I knew Parker knew at the instant the accident happened, it was a fatality. Uh, and I hit the talk back button to the truck and I said, no replays. 
And they're like, what? I said, that's a fatality, no replays. And so we sat on it, we sat on it, and, and we're using at very least the excuse that we got to get everybody notified. Um, but we knew it. We didn't know it officially. And race control, again, was a glass window to my right, and Wally, Bo- Wally Dallenbeck, the chief steward, on that side of the window. And we're both looking at each other, and his, his eyes were just haunted. Um, because here's the guy he had everything in the world going. He was going to drive for Penske. He was an enormously good driver. He was a great human being. Well, IndyCar at the time, whoever was leading it, decided to make a show out of it. And their show was going to be, we're going to throw out the yellow flag, slow everybody down. We're going to bring the flags at the start-finish line down to half-mass. And we're going to make the announcement. And then we'll go back to green. And when that notice came to both the control, race control and I, we're like, you got to be kidding me. You, you do understand this is a human being we're talking about here. And then a few laps later, they had gone back to green. They were racing now. And a few laps later, um, the flags start to come down. But no yellow flag. And then they went back up. And finally, television, we said, we know that everybody's notified in our own minds because they were at the track. And we sent Jack Arute to go talk to the doctors, Trammell and Aldi, and Aldi reported it uh, to Jack. So that's how we reported it on the air. But you talk about ripping your heart out. I had, I'd been standing with him before we went on the air in the morning, I was down in the pits. He's laughing about wrecking the motor scooter, showing me where they put a little cast together for him, talking about the Novocaine that they'd used on him. You know, and he just thought it was funny as hell. And that's the guy he was. So that one ripped you up pretty badly. Then the next night was the cart you're in banquet. And Parker and I were alternating, alternating the giving of the prizes. And I ended up with Greg Moore's announcement, you know, he won this for this position. And that was horrible too. It just, those, and I think with all of us, I think you ask anybody who does racing play by play for a living, that's, you dread it so much. I had it in drag racing. I had it in championship motorcycles and I certainly had it in any car and once in, in cup cars. So, it's those are the most horrible moments possible. Again, at the bottom line, they're your family, they're your friends. Hmm. Got two here for us, Paul, that'll hopefully uh, spin some mirth. Why don't we go with Jamie Carr? It says any name or phrase you could just never say correctly, or had to concentrate intently on to say correctly i love that because i have lots words to try say good with mouth and not do well good with um you though as a pro i'm sure paul have drummed out any hesitations any stumbling master of all words no (laughs) but okay any uh kidding aside any things you had to work on over the years, if whether you saw it in a script or a driver's name or whatever it was, where uh, you had to definitely focus your eyes on that as not to uh, stumble, fumfer, or otherwise? Yeah. Um, you have to make sure that you pronounce pole sitter right because you ten- have a tendency to put an H in there. And that can be real embarrassing. <laughs> and I did that on two occasions. Uh, and, and there, I, I don't know if I can do them off the top of my head, but there are a number where you just, you see it coming. It, 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 I, we wrote all of our own scripts. So um, with, with very few exceptions. So we kind of knew what we were going to talk about in the script, but you know, something would happen and, and you're flying along trying to do the, the job and trying to present it and you're moving pretty quickly and, you see this word that you know you're probably going to use in two nanoseconds, and you just put the brakes on. It's like, um, yeah, because there's there's a lot of minefields out there. 
but uh, I think I was lucky for the most part. Most part, I avoided them. Though, in my first Indy, uh, part of the Indy 500 radio deal was you had to give the uh, the lineup of the cars. You know, you give old audience; they may not know. So, in the pre-race, you're given the lineup of the cars. Well, that can be a tedious, especially because you're saying like Rick Mears, the Marlboro on the pole at such and such a speed. And you're doing it slow because people are writing it down. That was a big thing in the day. And so it also, for a guy who talks fast uh, and tends to think too far ahead, uh, it gets, you know, you know I'm kind of drifting while I'm doing it. And I get down to Danny on Gaius. And uh, for some reason, I, I use a phrase that involves the word sex not not a nasty word but sex the um it was it was like i called it the intersex racing special and it's whoops now do you go back and correct it no <laughs> you hope that everybody didn't hear it but of course it, it couldn't have been 30 minutes till uh rick Mirror's brother comes up uh, roger and comes through the back door and says do you really say sex on the air like that and i'm like oh no everybody heard it i'm fortunate paul to have a a listener by the name of jacob bame who has been faithfully compiling a google document of all of the malapropisms that stumble out of my face the things i intentionally (laughs) mispronounce uh for fun because again you know language use it however you choose and the list is amazing and it keeps growing and i love it so anytime i just want to look at how's this if someone were to pose the same question to me i would just consult the list which has i don't know 50 to 75 entries so far and the ones that were true errors where i inserted a letter uh maybe removed a letter to just added a weird accent or too hard on this hill, whatever it might be. It is just, it makes for hilarious reading because we all accept my limitations. They are many, they are varied. I appreciate folks accepting that. It's really fun though, to be able to look at them in properly documented form on a spreadsheet. Hell, we could look at them from a to Z. We can pick the order, but all my failings captured in a growing list. Truly, I love it. It's just the most hilarious thing. Well, I hope he's fully occupied doing it for you because I wouldn't want to see my spreadsheet. (laughs) Well, Mr. Page, saved what I consider to be the most fun for last. Sent in by our pal J.J. Gertler, a frequent contributor to the show. Says, Mr. Page, as if calling the races themselves weren't enough of a challenge, you were often asked to essentially be a referee between Sam Posey and Bobby Unser and occasionally with the other color commentators. says, do you have any particular recollections of that role as a man occasionally in the middle? And I know you do. And I know you're asked about this frequently. And I know we have a shared love for uncle Bobby. Sometimes that love is said with air quotes uh, or fingers crossed or appendages (laughs) crossed, but you indeed were a part of something that I don't know if you knew it was going to become a cultural phenomenon within racing, but lights, camera, action, you, Uncle Bobby, and Sam as well, potentially, man, that made for some amazing broadcasts that sometimes, often, had nothing to do with the broadcasts. Um, Any yarns you can spin here, and I have to assume folks will find plenty in your new book as well. Um, well, you'll find a lot of them um, with Sam and Bobby, especially. Um, that was that was serendipity. Um, we didn't really know how that was going to work out. Uh, and I come to ABC. I'm you know I'm the new guy on the block. Bobby and Sam had already been there for a year or so. And when they started at each other in the booth, I'm like in booth. I'm like, what do I do with this? Uh, and then I realized I'm actually laughing at it. It's pretty funny what they're doing. Uh, and Bobby is, no matter what Sam says, going to do everything he can to 
make it make it wrong that Sam said it, but then he'll talk and talk and talk and get around and say exactly what Sam just said. But since Bobby said it, it's right. Um, with them individually, Sam had a habit of making five by seven cards with his notes on them. Sam, you know, he's an architect, so he's very precise. And he does a lot of research, a lot of planning. The problem being, of course, what I mentioned earlier, you really can't look down. You've got to keep your eye, especially in the 500, because there's so many nuances in that race. You've got to know that rhythm. Um, and after two years of saying, Sam, don't do that, he came into the booth and he had a stack, had to be an inch and a half tall of five by seven cards. And the show's on the air. We're starting and we're getting down. And now we go down to the starting line for those famous words. And at that second, I pick that stack of cards up and I throw it all the way to the other end of the booth. <laughs> I, thought, I thought Sam was going to have a heart attack, but he was better. You know, now he was watching the race and caring about the race. And he suddenly realized, hey, everything I'm written down is in my memory. Oh, so that's brilliant. That word, Bobby, Bobby never, one quick, let's see, I got so many Bobby stories. Oh, my God. Um Bobby used to try and do his open on cameras um, with file folders taped together as a cue card for him. And I told him to stop that because, you know, something could happen in the middle of that opening where you have to change, change your direction and change what you're saying. But he wouldn't do it. So one year I just, uh, I pretended we were about two minutes to the air and I suddenly say, we're, we're going on, we're on, walk, get in there, Bobby. And, we stand up, and I, I look at the camera, and I say, welcome, here, here, da-da-da-da-da-da. Bobby, what do you think, kind of thing. And Bobby starts reading his cue card, and at uh, and cooperation with the stage manager, he stage manager lets them go, and they fly off the top of the grandstand. And Bobby just crashes <laughs> to a stop. And, so, I mean, he's really embarrassed. And so him still thinking I'm we're on the air, I'm saying, Bobby, that's exactly why I told you not to do that. And he's like, oh, father. He always called me father. Um, it wasn't on the air, of course, but it stopped him from doing that. Wow. You might go down in history, Paul, as the first and only person to correct Bob Yunter's behavior. I don't believe that's well, ever know, worked at any other point in time. Let me tell you something interesting about that, though, Marcia. The audience didn't like it. When I would correct Bobby because he had something legitimately wrong and I'm trying to save him, I started getting letters. You know, you don't know anything that Bobby Unser knows, so mm. you, you quit trying to correct him. So, perception. Well, if only in the we book, could. You will find all kinds of different Bobby Unser stories, not that one in particular, but things that he has said or done on the air that was hilarious. Just staring right now. Uh, about to order hello on paul page it's race day in indianapolis cannot seriously cannot wait for that to land really truly appreciate you taking some time here paul interacting with i'd say my listeners but they're your fans uh here in our little mm-hmm. indycar show truly look forward to doing this again sometime soon and hope to see you in may if i'm able to come out and uh i don't know be an actual at the track reporter for the first time in a long time. So looking forward to uh, hopefully getting to see you soon. Well, I hope so. If I have your permission to say two things, um, one is Bob Jenkins has had a bout with cancer, brain cancer. It's his second bout with cancer. He's gone through treatments and we just got word this week the MRI came back and he's fine. I'm, I'm so pleased for that. Oh, amazing. So many people care about him, so that, that's great news. And secondly, I hope you come to Indy because I'm going to be inducted into the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Hall of Fame, which is like, that's the greatest, greatest thing ever. Have to be there. I believe I was just told it has to happen. So I'm going to do my best <laughs> to make that I insist. a reality. Paul, thank you, sir. Thank you so much. You got I look it. forward to speaking soon. 